Good morning, everybody. Hope you've been having a thoughtful and reflective and spiritually fruitful Holy Week. I've really enjoyed the services at noon each day. It's just, uh, I could see doing this year round, just every noon. You know, for those of us who can gather, just get your head and your heart right. It, it makes a big difference. We've been having a wonderful time this week. And uh, as Fred said, you are invited to join us if you'd like to today. And then tomorrow is a special Good Friday service. It's an hour long. Just to remember Jesus Christ's uh, death on the cross. We come on the campus quietly and we leave quietly until we get into our cars just so that we can reflect before the Lord what all this means. That's tomorrow. Uh, and that uh, the sunrise service is at 630 uh, for those of you who go to uh, other churches, um, come join us at 6.30. That's a great time. The sun will be coming up, of course, in the rain. <laughs> so you can join us. We do, we do have a rain plan. So uh, we'll be indoors at the Botanical Gardens if, um, if it rains. But you're, you're welcome to come join us at 6.30. It's a great time to celebrate. First thing in the morning, the discovery of an empty tomb. <laughs> wow, what a, what a discovery that was. Uh, and then you can head off to your own church for uh, worship later on in the morning. Uh, Maundy Thursday, that's what today is. Maundy, uh, M-A-U-N-D-Y, Maundy, comes from the Latin word mondum, which means commandment. So on Thursday evening at the Last Supper, Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. So it's Commandment Thursday. And you know what that new commandment was, that you love one another as he has loved us. And he said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So the big word before the crucifixion was that those disciples really love each other. The brothers love each other. And we've seen that uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, <laughs> learned this from Christ, from reading the scriptures, from the Holy Spirit that the most important thing for us to do is love. And when we started off Romans 12, we saw that the first implication of uh, our understanding the gospel and receiving the gospel for our salvation is that we're going to imitate the love of Jesus Christ to other people. Paul says, in view of these mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And then he goes on to show us how we're to use our spiritual gifts to edify one another how we're to love the body, we're to love those who are easy to love, and we're to love those who are not so easy to love. We're to love everybody in the body of Christ. And then we're to love everybody, including our neighbor, including even our enemy. And we're not to return evil for evil, but we'll return good for evil. That's the big challenge, is to love like Jesus loves. When we come to chapter 13, we'll see that our love has to do even for those who are in authority, Yes, sirree, you got to love your teacher. You got to love the policeman. You got to love the judge who's pronouncing a sentence against you for speeding. You must love him. And there's a way in which you love him. And your love for him uh, also spreads in love for your neighbor. So it has to do with how we, how we relate to authorities, human authorities that are divinely ordained. So we have many of those authorities in our lives. And as Christian men, we are to learn how to respond to them. Uh, some people are like uh, my friend Steve Brown, who says that he despises authority so much he gets irritated at a stop sign. I mean, just anything that tells him what to do. And we live in a culture that is anti-authoritarian. 
It's amazing to me that we aren't anarchist or we haven't become anarchist. I think that's where we're headed, frankly. But uh, we, we uh, vaunt so highly the idea of personal freedom. That's, that's the American non-negotiable is personal individual freedom. It trumps everything. We'll kill over a million babies a year in order for a woman to be free to make her own decision about what to do with her body, even if she's destroying another body. Uh, because we just lift up human freedom to, uh, before everything else. When you do that, of course, that doesn't make you the best person in terms of responding well to authority. Don't tread on me. That's our basic logo. So uh, it's instructive and challenging for Americans uh, who've been trained in our political ethos and our cultural ethos to come to a text like this and really understand what it means for us. Uh, what it usually means, if we understand it, is a pretty radical change in the way that we think about authority. Uh, and it's so important for our Christian lives for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, as Paul's going to explain in this text, it has to do with our relationship with him. Because all these authorities are derived from him. He's the one who set it up. So if we go overthrowing authorities, we're overthrowing God's authority in our life. The other is... You pick this up more in 1 Peter, which is the other place in the New Testament where you get this text, this kind of text. Peter is concerned that you not diminish your testimony. Um, he's writing to minoritarians, of course. You know, Christians are a very, very small part of the population. And he doesn't want us to overthrow our testimony by being a bunch of rabble-rousers. So keep the peace, honor the king, don't overthrow the order that's there. Uh, because otherwise, if you do that, you're just going to be discounted as a radical sect uh, and, and not the people of the living God. So you really have two major concerns. The first one is obviously the dominant one, and that is that we, we've got to be in obedience to God and His authority. But the second one is we've got to have a good testimony out there. We need to be supportive of the order as it is in society. Well, with that as background, you can see then why Paul takes it up with the Roman Christians because, you know, they're, they're under Nero. Uh, they got problems uh, and they need some instruction about how do we relate to this wicked state. Uh, you may things, think things are wicked now. It looks like they're going to get more wicked. So I'm just telling you, we need to take a look at this. Uh, we don't have Nero. We're far from it. Uh, but we can just see our own public morality and political morality declining. Uh, if you've lived 25 years, you, you can see that. It's, it's declining. It's kind of falling apart on us. Uh, well, that doesn't mean Christians cease to be Christians. I was saying to one of you the other day, uh, you know, I, I've heard more people than ever say that this may be the first election where they officially just abstain because they don't know who to vote for. Uh, but uh, what I said to one of you the other day was this is a great opportunity for Christians because it does remind us that our kingdom is not of this world. And didn't Jesus say that on the very night in which he was betrayed, uh, when he was facing his uh, greatest trial? You know, he said to the authorities that my kingdom is not of this world. So when you're facing your worst trial, when things get as evil as they can get, you just remember this. Your kingdom is not of this world. And you're not going to, you know, you don't go down with uh, whatever nations go down. No, God's people are always uh, held up. Well, let's look at this. Romans 13, 1 through 7, there's much to learn here. We'll see what we can do in the, in the time allowed. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 
For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Oh, that's very timely, isn't it, gentlemen? (laughs) For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You know, I see uh, two categories of problems among Christian people in our country. Uh, One is a problem that I find mostly with my age and maybe a little older, maybe a little younger, Uh, but it's the upper group uh, where uh, we probably have over-engaged ourselves in uh, American nationalism and too much of our sense of well-being is tied up with how well our country is doing. I would say the older group uh, tends to do that. Those of you who are 55 and over, if 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 you lean one way or the other, it's probably that way. I probably lean that way myself. Uh, uh, And the younger group, uh, those who are, you know, 50 and under, and I left out the 50s, 55s, they're they're so messed up they can't even think about it. They got trying to pay for college and all the rest. They don't even think about this. But but those who are younger uh, would look at the older group and say, you know, you you sound shrill sometimes. Uh, You sound moralistic. And sometimes you don't sound very loving. Like you don't really like your neighbor very much, the one that you disagree with. And I don't really want to identify with that. And so the problem with the millennials, the younger group, uh, in, in general, this is an overgeneralization, uh, I'm sure. We're all a mixture of, of all of it. But sometimes in reaction to the older group who seems to have kind of wrapped their Bibles with a flag, uh, they seem to withdraw uh, on occasion. And uh, uh, since they've grown up in a culture, uh, the millennials have, where they're clearly in the minority cognitively uh, and morally. The the Christians in their age group are even a smaller percentage than the Christians in the older age group. So there's a sense of uh, hopelessness that settles in. And maybe a little cynicism about the possibility of even changing anything because the Christians have such a minor voice. And so their tendency is to want to figure out how to live in peace with our neighbors, how to build community together with non-Christians, some of whom are doing some very non-Christian things. 
but we need to build community with them. And the downside, of course, is that sometimes there is this indifference toward morality or seeking to advocate strongly for moral public policy in areas that have to do with uh, Christian ethics. At least that would be the view of the older group. So you have each of these tendencies. One is to be overly engaged uh, emotionally, I should say, in the prosperity of our nation and its public policy. And the other is to be under-engaged uh, in the attempt to get along with, it, with everybody. And I think what we have to do, of course, is to realize there are positives from both of these approaches and there are negatives from both of these approaches. It seems to me that what the Bible would teach us is that we are to be faithfully engaged. Faithfully engaged. Some would say, use the, the language of faithful presence. But that's a little bit, I think, too pietistic to describe the biblical testimony. Yes, we are faithfully present. In other words, we live in honest community with one another. We live as Christians, but it's more than just living the Christian life. It's also salt and light. It's it's evangelizing, discipling, training, and advocating in the environment around you. So, for example, some of the best uh, opportunities to, to learn from this come from people like Daniel or Joseph, who had opportunities in pagan society as believers to make a difference in their society and to shape public policy. Esther shaped public policy uh, at the risk of her own life. So it's both living faithfully as a Christian man, but it's also engaging faithfully as a Christian man. And I think when we turn to the Bible, we'll see that that's the case. Now, uh, the sort of theological foundation for this is that we know from what Paul says elsewhere, our citizenship is in heaven and we await a savior from there. This is Philippians 3.20. And we know that when he returns our bodies will be transformed into glorious bodies like his. So we know our ultimate eternal citizenship is in another place. We belong to Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth coming down out of heaven. But we also have temporary citizenship here. So Christians have to understand we have dual citizenship. We have a dominant citizenship and then we have a secondary citizenship. And whatever country you belong to, that's a secondary citizenship. And we have to take that seriously. Now, the difficulty in looking at the New Testament and trying to understand what, how, how do we engage politics now or engage the state now is that there wasn't a lot written on this, as you know. I mean, we're dealing with Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, and that's about it. And the reason is Christians were in minority. They didn't have opportunity to shape public policy. The Daniels hadn't arisen yet in the Christian church. The Josephs hadn't arisen yet. So they're an oppressed, tiny little group. So you don't get a whole lot of, of uh, writings from the apostle about public policy, about how to shape uh, community in, uh, with all the religions together under one national flag. You don't get instructions on that because it'd be irrelevant. Nobody has the opportunity to put it into practice. So what we do is we look at what is given and we make inferences from it. And what is given is the instruction to this tiny little minority about how they're to look at the state.
And when we see how they're to look at the state, we see the apostle also make some statements about the state and what the state is supposed to do. So that once we come into a large minority, which we are, uh, even though by, by numbers you would say we're a majority, uh, those numbers, those are just nominal Christians. The ones who are actually thinking like Christians are a, a relatively small minority. But we have a very powerful minority and we have opportunity to advocate and help shape public policy. So it's of our, it's interest to us to look and see what the apostle does say about the state, what Jesus says about it, as minimal as it is, uh, in com number of comments, and draw inferences then from how we ought to be viewing the state now. Now, the other source of information, of course, is the Old Testament. And you do have Daniel, and you do have Joseph, and you do have the children of Israel in Babylon and, the, and Jeremiah instructing them about how to live in exile. And we're in exile. So those passages are very helpful to us about how we view statecraft. But the point here is that statecraft is important for us, whether you're a tiny little minority in an oppressive state like Saudi Arabia, or whether you're here where you can publicly advocate and actually influence public policy. In both cases, our relationship to state is very important to the Bible. And that's the reason the Apostle Paul gives us half a chapter on it. Well, let's look, first of all, and see that Paul's main point, verses 1 through 5, is that we must obey civil authorities. He says, let every person, every person, and that certainly includes every person in the church, no exceptions, be subject to the governing authorities. And once again, I mentioned 1 Peter 2, and I've also put there Titus 3. He makes mention of it there. How we, our testimony is to be clear, that we are subject to the state. And you'll find with early advocates like Justin Martyr, uh, you know, right around 100 AD, Justin Martyr will write and defend Christians. And one way that he does, he says, he, when he's writing uh, to the authorities, he says, you know that these Christians are subject to authority like, like nobody else. So early on in the Christian experience, we were subject to authorities and everybody knew it. We were not some radical, rabble-rousing, troublemaking group. So uh, we've always had respect for the authorities. And he says, here's why. A, this is verse 1, B, and 2, because those authorities are ordained by God. He says in the text, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, the scripture verses that are under number two there, 2 Samuel 12, 8, Proverbs 8, 15, 16, and so on, that should really go under A, because there you'll get some statements that show you how God does ordain all the authorities from the Old Testament, multiple texts. For example, Proverbs 8, 15, by me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, says God, princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. And in Daniel, of course, you see it over and over again. The Lord is the one who raises up kings and puts down kings. So whether it's in the classroom uh, in, in the university or whether it's a policeman on the streets or whether it's the governor of the state, God has ordained. He has ordered all of this to take place. And so therefore they are 
his representatives. And remember, you can't say that they're so bad that I'm not going to submit to them because these people are submitting to Nero. So come on now, let's get with it. Uh, we have an order here to submit. So what he says in verse two, number one here under his ordination is that rebellion against authority equals rebellion against God. Wow. So when I decide to speed, which I do sometimes, you know, the speed limit's 65 and I'm going 75. You know, I'm looking out to see if there are any policemen out there. Well, I've got a much bigger problem than those policemen. I'm rebelling against God because he has ordained the authorities and they have laid down the law and I am rebelling against God's law. I hate to put that one on you because some of you speed too, but you, you know, you have to realize this is what's going on. Uh, we are to be in submission to our secondary citizenship and the governors who are there. And that's the reason it's so important uh, that you get engaged in politics and that you seek to get good men and women into office uh, because it makes a difference. You, you, because you're going to be submitting to them and you're going to tell your children to do the same. It's the reason that in the public schools and the private schools too, it's in our interest to have the best teachers possible who are in authority over our children because we're going to teach our children to be in submission to authority. So we now have the opportunity to do those things that the first century Christians didn't have. Now notice the next implication, number two here, in the second half of verse two, rebels bring judgment on themselves and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, uh, New Testament scholars debate whether this is the judgment of God or the judgment of the magistrates. I tend to think that the dominant thought here is judgment of the magistrates. In other words, if you disobey the magistrate, you're going to come under his judgment. So you should expect it. I've, I've been in court, <laughs> you know, guilty as charged, speeding, you know, get my ticket, pay my fine. I came under judgment. Uh, but I think there's also a little innuendo here because he had talked about uh, this being rebellion against God, that God is exercising his judgment through the judgment of the traffic court uh, or whatever court you're in. So when you come under the judgment of the civil authorities, in as much as you've actually done something wrong, which I did, then you're coming under God's judgment through his servants who are exercising the judgment in the state. And so God, Paul is simply saying, please understand, this is not just secular, other, non-God out there God's over all of this. He owns every square inch of the universe. He owns America. He owns Brussels. He owns Germany. He owns Saudi Arabia. He owns all of it. And he has ordered magistrates in every place. That's a pretty wide sweeping concept for us to take hold of today. Now, having said that, what about the American Revolution? <laughs> well, I've wondered about that myself. Uh, taxation without representation? I don't know. Is that, is that sufficient cause? We'll get into that in a few moments, but it's a big question for us to ask. And that's the reason I say Americans have a heritage of having overthrown the magistrate. And so we have to keep asking ourselves, uh, and I think this is good historical study for us. Were our forefathers in the right or not? And, uh, and it's very tempting just to be self-defensive so that we can enjoy July the 4th and so on. But it's more important that we have a real Christian perspective on this. And I just encourage you to study those things for yourself. But here, I want to make a note. What about civil disobedience? 
This is really, really important because when you look at the Bible, and I've listed a few texts there, you, uh, and, and you'll see them at the bottom in your footnotes, uh, I think, in the ESV, uh, uh, the ESV study Bible, uh, there is a place for civil disobedience. In fact, I think almost every Christian at some time has to come up to this and face the possibility of civil disobedience. For example, in Exodus 1, what do you have there? Well, Pharaoh tells all the midwives that they're to destroy all the Hebrew boys because we're getting too many of these Hebrews. So let's just abort or kill, you know, infanticide. Let's just kill the new babies as soon as they're born, put them in the Nile River. Well, you remember that Shifra and Pua decide to disagree and disobey. And that's how we ended up with Moses because they disobeyed the Pharaoh. And of course, ironically, uh, Moses ends up in Pharaoh's household and ends up being the, you know, the one who ends up delivering all the slaves out of Egypt. But it was because two women decided to violate the law. And you'll see in Exodus 1, God rewarded them for it and made them very prosperous because of it. So they did the right thing by disobeying the authorities. You'll notice also uh, with, um, go to Esther. Esther actually said it's against the law for a person to enter the king's presence without being invited. It's against the law. And in her day, the law, the sanction for that disobedience was death. So you, you were subject to death by breaking that law. But she says, uh, so be it. Lord can take my life. Mordecai had convinced her that she was brought into this kind of position for such a time as this. And so she risked her own life to break the law. And through breaking the law, of course, she spared all the uh, Israelites of her time. And then Daniel, of course, in Daniel chapter 3, you remember that uh, Nebuchadnezzar commanded everybody to bow down before the golden image. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do it. He was furious. He heated the furnace seven times hotter than usual and threw them in there. And lo and behold, there was one like a fourth man in the furnace. We know who that was. And he delivers them. And they came out and they didn't even smell like smoke. <laughs> but they said that our God will protect us. But even if he doesn't, Nebuchadnezzar, we will not worship your God. So even if the, they, they said God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, you know, because they weren't quite sure what would happen to them. But they were ready to go into the furnace and give up their lives in order not to worship false gods. So they're going to violate the law of the land. And they talked to the king himself face to face. Same thing with Daniel. The satraps, you know, the ones who were jealous of him got this crazy law that nobody prays to any god except to Darius himself. And then they found Daniel who immediately violated the law, went before the Lord to pray about it, which was a violation of the law. And they turned him in. And Darius who loved Daniel, but realized he was stuck by the law of the Medes and the Persians. He couldn't reverse his own decree threw him in the lion's den, and the, we're told the Lord shut the mouths of the lions. And Darius couldn't sleep all night. He gets up first thing in the morning, goes to the lion's den. Daniel's still alive. And Daniel says, well, my Lord protected me. And then he comes out and Darius says, his God is the only God. And he throws all the other guys who turned him in, along with their wives and children, into the lion's den. The lions consumed them. So Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Esther, uh, Shifra, and Puah, 
of just a whole history of people who disobeyed the magistrate. And then you come up to Jesus' time, and what did Mary and Joseph do? They disobeyed the magistrate. Uh, and so, so did the wise men. They disobeyed magistrate. And that's how we have Jesus uh, living to be 33 years of age, able to lay his life down on the cross. And then I put some verses here in Acts chapter 4 and 5. What did Peter and John do? They said to the Sanhedrin, you tell us, are we supposed to obey you or obey God? That's the choice you're giving us. And there are times when the magistrate gives you a choice. You can obey him or obey God. And you have a clear choice to make. So you do it humbly. You don't do, you know, rattling your 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 horn and to your own horn or making a big deal out of you, just humbly say, I, I must follow the Lord. And whether I survive or not, that's not the point. The point is I can't worship these false gods. I can't break the law of God. So here's the bottom line. We, and I've put this in under the note here, we disobey human authorities when they forbid what God commands or command what God forbids. So we disobey when they forbid anything that God commands us to do or they command us to do something that God actually forbids. Now, increasingly, we're moving in this direction. The American pluralistic constitutional system was set up so that you wouldn't be stuck with issues of conscience. We bring all these groups together, all these Christian denominations together, so we're non-denominational, we don't have a national church, but all these groups can come together and then increasingly other religious groups would be able to come in as well. But it was initially kind of a, uh, a coalition of humanists and, and evangelicals, basically what uh, the group was that put the Constitution together. And you had, of course, some deists in there like Jefferson and Franklin, uh, but it was largely sort of evangelical, Bible-committed people and Enlightenment people. Uh, who were finding common ground and building a society where the church could flourish, where the church would have a prophetic voice in the country, but where no one would be discriminated against on issues of religious conscience. So your conscience was free to operate. Now in, in verse 5, you'll see Paul mentions the issue of conscience. This is extremely important. Uh, in the scriptures, conscience is valued highly. You never want to violate your conscience. That's the reason that Paul says, even though I disagree with these folks who say that you can't eat meat offered to idols, for the sake of conscience, don't make them violate their own conscience. Don't tempt them to violate their conscience, even though they have a weak conscience. So you have a strong conscience. You know you're free to eat this meat that was offered to idols because you're not worshiping the idol at all. You're just eating the meat. You just want to have a nice meal. And you have a strong conscience. It doesn't bother you at all. So some of you have a conscience. You could drink a glass of wine whenever you want to. Some of you are teetotalers and you have kind of a conscience about it. Well, okay, you, so you would have what the Bible would describe, I'm sorry for this, but a weak conscience. Or maybe you're an alcoholic and you know you can't touch the stuff. But you've got, you've got a weaker conscience. And Paul says, no matter how free you think you are, don't tempt this guy to break his conscience because conscience is important. So what we try to do with our consciences is to have them conform increasingly to the biblical standards. The biblical standards of what we shall not do and the biblical standards of what we're free to do. We want our consciences increasingly to be shaped by the Bible. In the meanwhile, while our consciences are developing, you have to obey them. 
And Paul will often say, I'm free in my own conscience. He says, no one but God judges me, but my conscience sets me free. So he, he knows that ultimately only God is the one who can judge. Paul can't even judge himself. And yet he still keeps his conscience. So whatever your conscience is telling you is right and wrong, you need to abide by it. Now, the founders of our Constitution understood that. That's the reason that when I was a kid, you could have a conscientious objection about going to war if you thought the war was unjust. So, for example, in the Vietnam War, which was the war of my youth, you could opt out of being drafted if you were a conscientious objector, and that conscience could be that you thought the Vietnam War was an unjust war. And therefore, as a sake of conscience, you couldn't kill people in that war. Now, that was allowed in the 1960s. It's not allowed now unless you have a conscientious objection to all warfare. That was a horrible Supreme Court justice, a uh, Supreme Court decision back in the 60s or early 70s. I can't remember exactly when that decision was made. But it removed the ability, uh, the freedom of an individual Christian to assess a particular war and to decide whether to engage it or not based on whether he thought that war was just or not. So now there is no exercise of conscience unless you say honestly, I don't believe there should be any wars. And I don't think, I mean, I know there are such things as pacifists. Maybe some of you here, I just don't think the Bible defends pacifism. So basically then what that Supreme Court ruling did was to remove the exercise of individual Christian conscience when assessing the justice of a particular war. That, that's a travesty of American uh, theistic covenantal life together. And likewise, when you look at what's happening with the imposition of the new morality, which is that all people should be considered equally moral, you know, whether you believe in gay marriage, you don't believe in gay marriage, for example, you should, you should be required if you have a business to go celebrate that gay marriage. Now, I'm not debating whether we should have, we should allow gay marriage or not. Here's what I would debate is that we should allow for individual Christian conscience to be in operation. I understand this makes the American democracy messier, but what it allows for is for Christians to object and not be thrown in prison. Now, gentlemen, my point is this. Increasingly, if you object, you need to be prepared to go to prison. So, for example, if you honestly say, I don't object to all wars. I just object to going into this war and I'm not going to do it because it's an unjust war. And if you think it's an unjust war, you can't go to war. If you're a Marine and someone commands you to take out a village and there are non-combatants in that village, you can't take it out. And Marines don't like going apologizing to the, to, the, uh, to the lieutenant colonel. So you don't apologize. You just explain. I couldn't take them out. It was all made up of non-combatants. I'm not going to blow them up. So I'm not going to exercise your, not going to implement your order. Christians have to do that. And there's less tolerance for that in our culture. And then my main point here is you've got to be a man of God, regardless of what state you belong to, or what direction that state's going in, or how they change their laws. Now we'll see in a moment, you should be advocating for good laws. 
you should be complaining about that Supreme Court decision 40 years ago. Uh, so yes, we advocate, but once the law is in place and it's being implemented, then you must stand your ground no matter what the state does to you. So you have to be prepared in your mind to be a conscientious objector to many things and then suffer the consequences for it. That's, the, that's our whole legacy. I've given these verses here so you can see right from beginning of end, every one of our mediators, Moses, Jesus, all of our leaders came through basically violating the law of the state. So yes, we submit to the state until we're forbidden to do something we were commanded to do or commanded to do something that we're forbidden by the law of God to do. Okay, uh, now notice B, that we obey civil authorities not only because they are ordained by God, but because they are servants of God. They're there, actually there to do some good. First of all, they punish evil. And secondly, they commend good. That's what they're there for. Now, in a perfect world, the state would rule in accord with God's laws. But they, none of them does that perfectly. But that's generally why they're there. And generally what the apostle seems to me to be arguing for is that Nero is better than nothing. Which is to say anarchy is the worst condition. The Christians are not anarchists. Now, Malcolm Muggeridge, whom I like very much, he was converted at the age of 65. He had been an anarchist all of his life. I don't know if he died one or not, but I think he lived long enough, 20 years. I think he died at 85 or so. I, I, I imagine he, he was no longer an anarchist. But he, he was technically, philosophically an anarchist until he got converted. But I think when you get converted, you can't be an anarchist. Because here, he says, civil authorities are there to punish evil and to commend the good. So you can see then as an implication, we are to advocate for public policy that punishes evil and commends good. That's the purpose of civil governments. So we've got a long way to go, haven't we? Now, the question is, what goods are implemented by state? It's certainly good to worship the Lord every Lord's Day. It's good to tithe. It's good to evangelize. I don't think you want civil laws on any of those areas. Now, if we had a civil law on tithing, the church would be a whole lot better off. I'm so glad that the, we have an IRS and a police force and prisons because you pay your taxes. And nobody seems to be, you know, on the tithe, evangelicals cut it down to 2.5%. So, you know, 7.5% is left in your account uh, and you get away with it. You know, nobody throws you in prison. Now, if you, did, if you did that with your taxes, you'd be in real trouble, wouldn't you? So I'm glad that our taxes are not voluntary. I can say as a pastor, we'd be in real trouble if our taxes were voluntary because I see what we do when our payments are voluntary. Uh, but we don't want everything legislated, do we? We do want some things to be voluntary, even if we fail in them, even if we might do better if we were intimidated. We don't want to be intimidated by the state. Why? Because those issues have to do in particular with our personal relationship with God and our devotion to Him. And we don't want that regulated by an unregenerate state. We want the church to plead with us and preach to us and pray for us and counsel us and hold us accountable and all the rest. We want that spiritual means. So it takes discernment, doesn't it? 
to see which issues should be, uh, <clears throat> become law, civil law, and which issues should simply be church law. For example, 200 years ago, most of our states had sodomy laws. I don't think that anybody really in most of the churches today would want us to make illegal homosexual relations and throw people in prison for that. I don't think that we want that. Why? Because we've developed our sense of what is really a private moral issue and what affects public commonwealth. Now, I do think, as a matter of fact, that does affect commonwealth, but we would pick that up at another place along the way. For example, I think when you're sanctioning marriages and giving them tax breaks, which is to give them incentives for the behavior, I think it's also obligatory upon our legislators to tell us why they think it's to our advantage as a culture that we would be adopting children into same-sex marriages. And I don't think anybody can produce the data to show us that that's to our advantage. I think there's some data research uh, on longitudinal studies which shows us that's to our disadvantage. So when I was called by the congressman and asked me what I thought about that issue, I said, the burden is on the Congress to show us by good scientific study what's in the interest of the Commonwealth. What you're doing is you're providing tax incentives for human behavior. And when you endorse gay marriages, you're providing tax incentives for that behavior. And I have a question for you. What makes you think that's in our interest as a Commonwealth? I don't see any study that suggests it. I don't see why any of us would think the next generation needs to be reared that way. So, so you see how our arguments are, uh, we're not trying to impose personal morality. We're trying to impose what's good for the commonwealth, what's evil for the commonwealth. That's how we ought to be pleading. And that is what the civil magistrate's supposed to do. So the civil magistrate ought to give speeches and to commend people for their good behavior. The civil magistrate ought to hold the law and punish people who disobey. Now, let's look next, number three, to avenge God's wrath. This is something that we Christians often forget, that the role of the magistrate is to punish evil, to commend good, and in so doing, to represent God's wrath. God is, and he's Lord over the state, just like he's Lord over the church. And if we understand our role properly, in civil service, we understand that we're representing God in the service of his creatures. And when there's punishment to be executed, it is in the name of God to avenge his wrath. Now, you'll not get a big crowd to give you a standing ovation for that speech. But that's what Paul is describing for us. And he's saying, look, when Nero puts people to death because they did something wrong, it may have been done in some ways unjustly, but basically he's avenging God's wrath. Now this goes back to Romans 12, 19. You remember Paul says, don't you avenge God's wrath. You're not the ones who take God's wrath. Let God take God's wrath. And one way that he does it is through the civil magistrate. So these are tied together. And so we're to realize that even if we don't agree with everything about our government, its purpose is to represent God. Now, there are two political doctrines that come from this text. We only have a few minutes. I'll, uh, we're going to have to race through it. But this phrase in verse, uh, in verse 4 is very important. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. What does it mean to bear the sword? This is New Testament language for capital punishment. 
What do you do with a sword? You chop people's head off. You don't spank people with a sword. You kill them with a sword. So Paul is saying he does not have the power of capital punishment in vain. So it's hard to make, I think, a, an argument against capital punishment from the scriptures because if you go to Genesis 1, you get the logic of capital punishment. We're made in the image of God. And in Genesis 9, when you have uh, Noah and his family being led out after the flood, God is making a new covenant, reestablishing the human race. He makes it clear, if anyone sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now that's given for everybody. That's for all the human family that was there. And he says, this is it. And here's the reason. Because you are made in God's image. It's because of the sanctity of life. Does that sound ironic to you? But it's because of the sanctity of life that life is taken when you take human life. So this is so severe. God said that whenever someone lays a hand on a man, takes his life intentionally, his life shall be taken. Now you'll find in Jewish law in the Old Testament that if a man committed manslaughter, that is non-intentional killing of, a, of another life, there were cities of refuge to which he could flee and spend the rest of his days there in safety. But if he committed first degree murder, he was to be handed over for execution because first degree murder was the intentional destruction of the image of God in a human being. So when people say to me, how can you be against abortion and for capital punishment? I'm saying, well, that's simple. I mean, it's, it's obviously consistent. It's the sanctity of human life. You have a fetus who is a human being who has rights because they have, they're made in the image of God. You don't take that life. On the other hand, you have a, a first degree murder where someone has intentionally taken the blood of a human being without cause and because that was the image of God, you must wreak God's wrath on that head. Now, of course, in our particular case, capital punishment is now uh, a de very debatable item for many reasons. Uh, but one of them I'm very sympathetic with, and that is that uh, the execution of capital punishment is highly racialized. You can have a white person, a, a Caucasian person, an African-American person commit the same crime and a higher percentage of African-Americans are put to death by the state. So because of that, many are arguing for a moratorium on capital punishment. And I have to say, I'm sympathetic to that because racial injustice is horrible in every case. But when you're coming to taking a man's life, because he's African-American, now you've got a problem. So, of course, the solution is to bring racial justice to the courts and for those of us who have uh, resources to help defend the poor, because many of the African-Americans who are being put to death by capital punishment are poor, can't afford good legal counsel. So it's our duty to provide good legal counsel. Once well represented, however, then I would say it seems to me to be the right thing to value human life in every way. So this is how I think they tie together in the Bible. Now, the next doctrine that's really important is the just war theory. And that's very important in our day. I think there have been some violations of it in recent times. Whether we were 
whether we were justified or not in going into Iraq the second time or, you know, under George W. Bush administration. I, I frankly find myself very doubtful that we had warrant to invade. And I felt that way at the time. But for sure, what was true is that there was no doctrinal justification given publicly for the invasion. As the most powerful nation in the history of the world, that's a huge mistake ever for us to invade, to attack, to declare war without justifying it by our political doctrine. Because then we are saying to the rest of the nations, y'all copy us. If we just get a whim or we don't like somebody or we're afraid of them a little bit, we'll just invade them. Y'all do the same. Now, what kind of world are you going to live in? When you have more power than anybody else of all the people in the world, you have to be scrupulous about the doctrine that justifies what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like uh, President Bush as a man, but he, was, he did not articulate just war theory doctrine. It was, you know, this stuff from Texas and all that kind of stuff. That's just rabble rousing, saber rattling. And here we have a just war theory that Augustine and then later Aquinas developed for us that comes out of Romans 13 by inference. Once again, we were minority in the first century, so we have to now do by inference how would a large uh, my, uh, minority of Christians advocate for public policy, and I think this is the way it goes. First of all, you have jus uh, ad bellum, which is justice or righteousness toward war, or that is, how do you justify going into war? And first of all, well, they're, they're usually more than these. I've kind of combined them. First of all, you have to be under a proper authority. So when in the American Revolution, we were under proper authority. We had, we had constituted our own magistrates and put ourselves under authority, and Washington was our general. So you have to have a proper authority. Secondly, you have to have a just cause. Now, this is where I think the American uh, debate takes place. Was there just cause to... to lead to a just war. And I put here imminent danger. That's a more recent late 20th century argument because of nuclear arsenals. If someone's loaded up with nuclear weapons and they're pointed at you, is that the same as being attacked? Well, it's the doctrine of imminent danger. And that's, uh, that's pretty um, thin ice to be walking on because you can always justify something by saying we were in danger. That's the reason that from a just war theorist, whether there were weapons of mass destruction is a huge issue in Iraq because that seemed to be the only justification. Now, in my view, if, if I were uh, trying to justify some policing of Iraq, I would have simply gone back to the treaties that were established after George H.W. Bush went in and the no-fly zones were established and Iraq was violating no-fly zones. And so you can have a just attack based on someone violating a treaty and because they had attacked in those no-fly zones. And that would be the way to do it carefully and scrupulously, in my opinion. And it must be done that way as Christians. We don't just go attacking someone because they're, we think they're wicked. Thirdly, righteous intent. Is our, for example, take the, the Iraq war. Some people were saying, wrongly I think, that all we were after was oil. Well, obviously we haven't gotten any oil out of that and I don't think that was in our intent. But the question is, what is your intent? Is it to exercise justice or is it to get someone's property? 
And you can look at the Soviet Union, for example. You can see what their intent is, is to support their collapsing economy by annexing nations. Uh, that was back in the 20th century they were doing that. And now, of course, they've got some of that same habit when it comes to Ukraine and some other places. Fourthly, is the war last resort? Do you have any other options? Have you exhausted your diplomatic efforts? Fifthly, are there favorable prospects? You don't go engaging a war that you don't think you're going to win. All you do then is just shed blood everywhere. So the generals, and then of course in our case, I think wisely, our civil government has to look at what the generals are saying and see if they have a plausible uh, pattern for showing us the likelihood of victory. Now, us in bello is justice in the battle, in war. So it's just war theory while you're in the battle. And first of all, proportionality. You don't drop a nuclear bomb on somebody uh, when you're trying to take over uh, you know, a, a small territory or when you're not being threatened. You go ahead and risk your ground troops. You go ahead and sacrifice some of your lives, but you don't just drop a nuke uh, and destroy uh, non-combatants on the other side. Proportionality. So the techniques of warfare need to be adap adapted to the situation. Secondly, discrimination of targets. And I know from my own son being the Marines, this was very difficult when you're dealing with wicked people who shield themselves with women and children. And you've got a historic American doctrine of warfare that comes out of the just war theory that we do not destroy uh, non-combatants. Makes it very, very difficult. And some of the air support in some of the invasions in, in Afghanistan were severely limited because the air support would have taken out non-combatants because of the wickedness of our enemy. So it gets very complex. And soldiers now, when they're fighting in that part of the world against those kind of people uh, who, who have, uh, don't value human life uh, biblically, uh, have to work under severe constraints at the risk of their own lives. It's very difficult to hold to your doctrine. But our doctrine's important. It's far more important than if we win a battle, gentlemen. Your character is important, whether you win or lose. And that's what, we, what we ought to, that's what we ought to take pride in, in our own national heritage. And then thirdly, U.S. postbellum, justice after the war, is to provide relief, help establish order, and see if you can establish friendship, even with your former enemies. All that's obligatory upon a conqueror. And Americans like to go in and, and then just pull out. Uh, the, now, the British would go in 20th century and stay forever, but there's something in between where we go in and help them reestablish an order. That usually takes, frankly, a generation. Someone asked me when, when we invaded Iraq under George W. Bush, how long do you think we'll be there? And I said, well, we probably should be there 25 years. 25 years? I said, don't worry, Americans never do what's right. But if we stayed well, for the period that would actually be justice after the war, it'd be 25 years because you have to raise up the next generation. You have to teach them civics classes. You have to show them how to live in life, help build the economy, and then you can pull out. That to me would be the way to do it. But if that's not the way to do it, fine. But justice after the war includes some form of order. And then we've mentioned conscience. Now, lastly, we must pay civil authorities, first of all, taxes. So come on now. These are God's servants. This is his purpose. He's put even evil people over us to whom we are to submit and we're to pay taxes and support them, even if it's Nero. So I understand the complaint about taxes. I understand that governments naturally 
continue to gobble up the resources. And I understand that they need to be under constraint. But once we as a, as a republic decide what the taxes are going to be through whatever methods they're done, pay them up. No cheating allowed. And then lastly, we respect and honor our authorities. And this is difficult when if you're in one party and the other party is governing Congress or you're in one party and the other party's in the White House, sometimes it's difficult for you to respect people. And you know I have some major complaints against some of the candidates. One of those candidates is going to become president. And I, it's going to be my duty to show full respect and full honor for whomever is elected our president. And it's your duty too. Whether it's mayor or police chief or governor or president, they must have our honor. Paul pleads with the Christians to do this for the sake of our conscience, for the sake of God's glory, and for the sake of our testimony in a pluralistic world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the establishment of order that you have given through statecraft for centuries upon centuries. We do not understand all of the mixture of good and evil that takes place in political structures and sometimes get very discouraged about it. But we pray that you'll help us to do our part, to advocate publicly, to lead people to Jesus and to disciple them and train them in civics and to be engaged and yet not overly engaged so that we know of our citizenship to come. And we especially thank you that one day every king and potentate, every prince, every authority that ever ruled on the earth will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ who will come back in all of his glory and we will now see as the seventh angel proclaimed the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. And so, Lord Jesus, the king of all kings, the ruler of all rulers, and the Lord of all the lords, we bow before you this day. And we make our prayer in your precious name. Amen.